0: The following announcement has been paid for by Journey Into Wrestling. Things seem to be changing around here, and I'm talking podcasts, brother. Journey Into Comics Network and no J.I.W.? Where's the wrestling? That's just it, bro. We're making a comeback. J.I.W. has taken over. Butt stuff, trophy, the poor rapport, all these new guys on the scene. We're about to show them what podcasting is all about, Chico. Why don't you tell them when they can hear us, Nate? Every other Wednesday, right here on the Journey Into Wrestling Network. Anything less new world, new world is just too civilized. New, 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 new world, new world order. The following is a Journey Into Comics Network production. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 23 of The Poor Report. I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me here today on a not-very-exciting newsweek. I mean, nothing happened between my last episode and this one. There was no big primetime presidential speech. There wasn't any major sporting event. There wasn't the release of a, a document that was hyped by Republicans. I mean, nothing happened last week. Actually, that all happened last week. We had the State of the Union, we had the Nunez memo, we had the Super Bowl. So much stuff happened last week that I'm just going to dive right in to get to what you're here for. So, President Trump on Tuesday evening around, I believe, 8 p.m. Central Time or 9 p.m. Eastern, which is where he was giving it, Trump gave his first State of the Union in front of all members of Congress and everything and... Is broadcast live for the Union. Had one of the largest crowds ever, probably, according to him. So basically, it was an hour and 20 minute speech. Not the longest State of the Union, but not the shortest by a long shot. So, I'm going to go through and talk about some of the fact-checking that went into the State of the Union. Because there's a lot. I'm looking at nine pages I had printed off of what I researched from my own and what other news agencies have done. So I'm just going to run through the list here. There aren't exactly in order of where they were in the speech, but I encourage everyone who hasn't heard the State of the Union to listen to it or watch it or read the transcript because that speechwriter did a great job. It sounded nothing like Trump. It was definitely not a transcript of Trump's tweets. It was definitely something that was very well orchestrated by a probably a team of speechwriters that Trump read very well, including the big parentheses, probably said, hold for applause, because there was a ton of applause in that speech coming from mainly Republicans and very few, if any, Democrats. So I'm going to jump right into some of these points here so trump said the third pillar of my immigration plan ends the visa lottery a program that randomly hands out green cards without any regard to skill merit or the safety of our people and the facts is the program is not nearly that random and it does address skills merit and safety the diversity visa program awards up to fifty thousand green cards a year to people from underrepresented countries largely in Africa. It requires applicants to have completed a high school education or of at least two years of experience in the past five years in a selection of fields identified by the Labor Department. Winners are then randomly selected by a computer from the pool of applicants who met the preconditions. Winners must submit to extensive background checks, just like any other immigrant. Trump also said, We have ended the war on American energy. The fact is, what war? Energy production was unleashed in past administrations? Particularly Obama's advances in hydraulic f- fracturing before Trump became president made it economical to tap vast reserves of natural gas. Oil production also greatly increased, reducing imports. Before the 2016 presidential election, the U.S. for the first time in decades was getting more energy domestically than it imports. Before Obama, George W. Bush was no adversary of the energy industry. One of Trump's consequential actions as president on this front was to approve the Keystone XL pipeline, a source of foreign oil from Canada. Trump said, We are now very proudly an exporter of energy to the world. And there's nothing new in that. The U.S. has long exported all sorts of energy while importing even more. If Trump meant that the U.S. has become a net exporter of energy, he's rushing things along. The U.S. Energy Information Administration projects that the U.S. will become a net energy exporter uh, in the next decade, primarily because of a boom in oil and gas production that began before Trump's presidency. The Trump White House has predicted that could happen sooner, by 2020, but that's not now. Trump also goes on to say, For decades, open borders have allowed drugs and gangs to pour into our most vulnerable communities. The facts are that the borders were far from open before his presidency, however imperfectly they have been, may have been guarded. The government under George W. Bush and Obama roughly doubled the ranks of the Border Patrol, and Bush extended fencing to cover nearly one-third of the border during his final years in office. The Obama administration deported more than 2 million immigrants during the eight years he was in office, more than in previous administrations. Border arrests, a useful if imperfect gauge of illegal crossings, have dropped sharply over the past decade. Trump said, Many car companies are now building and expanding plants in the United States, something we haven't seen for decades. The facts are he was wrong about recent decades. The auto industry has regularly been opening and expanding factories since before Trump became president. Toyota opened its Mississippi factory in 2011. Hyundai's plant in Alabama dates to 2005. In 2010, Tesla fully acquired and updated an old factory to produce its electric vehicles. Trump also declared that Chrysler is moving a major plant from Mexico to Michigan. That's not exactly the case, either. Chrysler announced it will move production of heavy-duty pickup trucks from Mexico to Michigan. But the plant is not closing in Mexico. It will start producing other vehicles for global sales, and no change in its workforce is anticipated. Trump said, We repealed the core of the disastrous Obamacare. The individual mandate is now gone. No, it's not gone. It's going in 2019. People who go without insurance this year are still subject to fines. Congress did repeal the unpopular requirement that most Americans carry insurance or risk a tax penalty, but that takes effect next year. Trump goes on to say, We have sent thousands and thousands and thousands of MS-13, horrible people, out of this country and in, or into our prisons. That's an exaggeration and goes beyond now even Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the administration's most aggressive anti gang enforcer, characterized the scope of the effort. Sessions said in speeches this past week that federal authorities had secured the convictions of nearly 500 human, human traffickers and 1,200 gang members and worked within our international allies to arrest or charge more than 4,000 MS-13 members. Another occasion, the Attorney General specifically said the 4,000 number reflects work done with. Our partners in Central America. That suggests that at least some of the MS-13 members Trump is referring to were in action in the US when they were arrested and aren't now in US prisons. Trump says we have ended the war on beautiful, clean coal. The facts are that coal is not clean. According to the Energy Department, more than 83% of all major air pollutants, sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, toxic mercury, and dangerous soot particles from power plants are from coal even though coal makes up only 43% of the power generation. Power plant's are the number one source of those pollutants. Coal produces nearly twice as much heat-trapping carbon dioxide per energy created as natural gas, the department says. In 2011, coal burning emitted more than 6 million tons of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide versus 430,000 tons from the other energy sources combined. And just think back to London at the turn of the century when it was using coal and it Literally couldn't see anything due to all the smog and acid rain and all the chaos that was going on over there. Regarding tax cuts, he says, Just as I promised the American people from this podium 11 months ago, we enacted the biggest tax cuts and reform in American history. That is false. In fact, the Trump tax cuts are the eighth largest in history. This claim has been fact-checked in the past. The Washington Post deemed it a four Pinocchio whopper idea what that is, I might have to dig into what the... I guess that's the level of its lie. for on the Pinocchio Whopper? I have no idea. The Post measured the tax cut as a percentage of the gross domestic product, or GDP, in order to take inflation adjustments out of the equation. Assuming the growth that Mr. Trump anticipates, the Post calculated that the tax cut would be 0.9% of GDP. That puts his tax cut squarely behind President Barack Obama's 2010 tax cut, which was 1.31% of GDP. Ronald Reagan's 1981 tax cut was the biggest at 2.89% of GDP. Regarding the stock market, Trump said, since the election, the stock market has smashed one record after another, gaining $8 trillion in value. That is great news for Americans' 401k, retirement, pension, and college savings accounts. According to Howard Silverblatt, a senior analyst for Standard, Standard & Poor's, who is known for his in-depth market data, the market value added between Election Day and the market close on Friday, January 26th is $7.18 trillion. But that wealth won't affect nearly half of Americans who aren't invested in the stock market. 2016 Federal Reserve report found that only 52% of Americans were invested in retirement accounts regarding family immigration. It said under the current broken system a single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited number of distant relatives. That is false. According to the US Citizenship and Immigration Services, a US citizen can petition for a spouse, unmarried children under 21, sons and daughters married and or over 21, parents if you are 21 and over and siblings if you are 21 and over. A green card holder can petition For spouses, unmarried children under 21, and unmarried son or daughter of any age. Regarding regulation, says, In our drive to make Washington accountable, we've eliminated more regulations in our first year than any administration in the history of our country. And the fact is that it's partially true, but incomplete metric. Trump has... Trump may have grounds to brag, but his claim cannot be easily verified. There is no reliable metric on which to judge his claim or to compare him to previous presidents. The modern regulatory state didn't really begin until Nixon, and since the 1970s, there have been periods when entire segments of the economy were deregulated. Airline and trucking, for instance, in the 1970s and 1980s, and those acts had greater impact on the economy than rolling back individual rules. But on the number of regulations withdrawn, Mr. Trump's claim can be determined using figures from an OMB database for President Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and five years of Bill Clinton's presidency. Over the course of those presidencies, the database shows the following numbers for withdrawn regulations. Clinton, 1,824. Bush, 2,632. Obama, 1,814. And Trump, 469. Of course, Mr. Trump's presidency has barely begun, narrowing the range to what suggests in our first year, his claim adds up. Bush was 181, Trump was 156. Oh, sorry. Bush was eighty-one, Obama was 156, and Trump was 469. So, in the first year, yes, over an entire career, that remains to be seen. It's too soon to make that statement. Regarding employee bonuses, he says, Since we passed tax cuts, roughly 3 million workers... I've already gotten tax cut bonuses, many of them many of them thousands and thousands of dollars per worker. And it's getting more every month, every week. So that's weird. Um that was what he said. Is it said, and it's getting more every month, every week. That's just a weird thing to say. And the fact check says it's true, but Americans for Tax Reformer Pro GOP group has been keeping track of this by aggregating a bunch of companies' press releases. The group claims 285 companies and at least 3 million Americans are receiving special tax reform bonuses. But Obama economic advisor Larry Summers has thrown cold water on this metho- methodology, arguing that firms are raising wages because the labor market is tight. He called it a gimmick in an interview a few days ago on CNBC's Squawk Alley. That's a very common device. If you want to give someone, somebody some money, but you don't want to promise it to them on a continuing basis, you frame it as a bonus. Look, the corporate tax cuts are going to be forever. If the firms really believe this had to do with corporate tax cuts, why aren't they committing to bonuses forever? Which is very much a true statement. If they really wanted to make a statement regarding their tax cuts and passing that down, they would give raises to all their employees, not just bonuses. Uh, America Standing Abroad. He says, As we rebuild America's strength and confidence at home, we are also restoring our strength and standing abroad. The fact check is debatable. In terms of strength, America certainly projected military might abroad, dropping the largest bomb in its arsenal for the first time in 2017 on a target in Afghanistan and launching missile attacks on military targets in Syria. However, the State Department also issued a worldwide safety warning to American citizens in December after Mr. Trump's announcement that the U.S. would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. It was the first time such a warning has been issued since the beginning of Of the Iraq War in 2003. In terms of standing abroad, the 2018 edition of Edelman's annual trust barometer showed trust in the U.S. declining by nine percentage points since their 2017 report, the steepest decline ever measured. By the way of contrast, trust in China increased by the biggest proportion globally. Regarding judges, Trump said Working with the Senate, we are appointing judges who will interpret the Constitution as written, including a great new Supreme Court justice and more circuit court judges than any new administration in the history of our country. Hey, look, a true statement. Mr. Trump has nominated 12 circuit court judges who have been successfully confirmed by the Senate. More than any other president since circuit courts were created in 1891, Barack Obama got three through the Senate in his first year. Regarding tax savings... A typical family of four making $75,000 will see their tax bill reduced by $2,000, slashing their tax bill in half. The fact is, that's true for now. Business Insider estimated the tax saving for a family of four with an annual income of $75,000 will save $2,244. Under the previous law, they would have paid $3,983. However, the Joint Committee on Taxation says that down the road, the tw- by 2027, families making between $50,000 and $75,000 per year will be paying more in taxes. Meanwhile, households earning $1 million per year would see their average tax rate decline to 344 34- percent in 2019. And they'd still be better off than they are now by 2027, paying an average rate of 31.7% rather than 32.1% under the current law. Regarding American ingenuity america is a nation of builders we built the empire state building in just one year isn't it a grace that it can now take 10 years just to get a minor permit approved for the building of a simple road and that's mostly true the empire state building was structurally complete 410 days after demolition began on the waldorf astoria which previously occupied the site on which it now stands there were 577 days between the beginning of demolition and the official opening date Mr. Trump's claims about it taking 10 years to get a permit approved for a simple road suffers from a lack of data. Pointing out that the previous comparisons of this nature do not compare like with like. Mr. Trump is contrasting the swift construction time of a pre-planned project, which will have taken years to come to fruition with the planning time it takes to bring a project to the construction phase. Regarding U.S. investments, instead of touting a $15 billion investment in the U.S. by ExxonMobil, President Donald Trump, in a State of Union address, cast the oil company announcement as one of many positive results of recent enacted tax legislation. While the assertion regarding Exxon's five year spending plan is true, it's less impressive than it initially appeared. So, since we passed tax cuts, roughly 3 million workers have already gotten tax cut bonuses, many of them thousands and thousands of dollars per worker, which I talked about before. And it's getting more every month, every week. There's that weird line again. Apple has just announced its plans to invest a total of $350 billion in America and hire another 20,000 workers. And just a little while ago, ExxonMobil announced a $50 billion investment in the United States. Just a little while ago. Repeating again. That's, that's something about Trump. He likes to repeat himself, even in speeches like this. I'm assuming he just reads it and then says it again for emphasis. I'm not quite sure. So Mr. Trump is correct in saying that Exxon recently committed to invest at least $50 billion in the U.S. over the next five years, in a post this week on the energy company's corporate blog, CEO Darren Wood said that it will create thousands of jobs, strengthen the U.S. economy, enhancing energy security. What the president glossed over is that Exxon's planned expenditures, while a significant investment by one of the biggest companies in the world, actually marks a decline in the U.S. spending over the previous five years citing Exxon's financial filings. The Institution on Taxation and Economic Policy says Exxon spent about $58 billion on capital and exploration in the U.S. from 2011 through 2015. Also, Apple announced on January 17th that it will build a second corporate campus and hire 20,000 workers and a $350, $350 billion five-year commitment. And I guess before I get to the Democratic response, which I'll read a section that I actually really liked from Joseph Kennedy III's speech from... I believe it was somewhere in... Massachusetts, I think it was like Fox River, Massachusetts, something like that. Um, So this is regarding a tweet, not necessarily part of Trump's State of the Union, but he says in his tweet, Thank you for all the nice compliments and reviews of the State of the Union speech. 45.6 million people watched, the highest number in history. Now, it's not the highest in history. Trump's TV viewership is measured by Nielsen. 45.6 million, as he said. Trailed that for first State of the Union speeches by Barack Obama, which was 48 million George W. Bush, which was $51.7 million, and Bill Clinton, which was $46.8 million. He's also said that we've signed into law the biggest tax cuts and reforms in American history, which is what he said on a th- the Republican lawmakers' retreat on Thursday of last week, which is a lie. So the Democrat tax overhaul ranks behind Ronald Reagan's in the early 1980s post-World War II tax cuts and at least several more. He made the same claim Thursday night and countless times before that. Or Tuesday night, sorry. Ano- analysis by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget in the fall put Trump's package as the eighth biggest since 1918. As a percentage of total economy, Reagan's 1981 tax cut is the biggest, followed by the 1945 rollback of taxes that financed World War II. Filed at $1.5 over 10 years, Trump's plan is indeed large and expensive, but it's much smaller than originally intended. Back in the spring, it was shaping up as a $5.5 trillion package. Even then, it would have only been the third largest since 1940 as a share of gross domestic product. Wow, that is a lot of talking. I'm sorry I had to kind of go on with you guys for that. And that was the State of the Union and the follow-up from that. I'm about to read my favorite segment from Joseph Kennedy's speech. And it looks like this episode, because I'm not even done with the first topic... It's probably going to be one of my longer episodes of recent, which is fine. There's definitely a lot of news to talk about and some news I need to share that happened just before I started recording. So this is Joseph Kennedy's speech from Fox River, and Joseph Kennedy is the grandson of Bobby Kennedy, and that would make him the great nephew of former President John F. Kennedy. And this is kind of it's the more into his speech. It's actually a really beautiful speech. I encourage you to check it out if you're going to listen to Trump say the union. Definitely listen to Joseph Kennedy's The Third's follow-up. It says, It began the day our founding fathers and mothers set sail for a new world. Fleeing oppression and intolerance, it continued with every word of our tolerance. The audacity to declare that all men are created equal. An imperfect promise for a nation struggling to become a more perfect union. It grew with every suffragette step, every freedom rider's voice, with every weary soul we welcome to our shores. And to all the dreamers out there watching tonight, let me be absolutely clear. Vamos a luchar for ustedes. Yes, he said Spanish. Uh, You are part of our story. We will fight for you and we will not walk away. America, we carry that story on our shoulders. You swarmed to Washington last year to ensure that no parent has to worry if they can afford to save their child's life. You proudly marched together last weekend, thousands deep, on the streets of Las Vegas and Philadelphia and Nashville. You sat high atop our mom's shoulders and held a sign that read, Build a wall and my generation will tear it down. My favorite part of that speech. You bravely say, Me too. You steadfastly say, Back lives matter. You wade through floodwaters, battle hurricanes, brave wildfires, and mudslides to save a stranger. You battle your own quiet battles every single day. You drag your weary bodies to that extra shift so that your families won't feel the sting of scarcity. You leave loved ones at home to defend our country overseas, patrol our neighborhoods at night. You serve, you rescue, you help, you heal. The more than any law or leader, debate or disagreement, that is what drives us towards progress. Bullies may land a punch, they may leave a mark, but they have never, not once in the history of our United States, managed to match the strength and spirit of a people united in defense of their future. Politicians can cheer for the promises they make. Our country will be judged by the promises we keep. And if that isn't someone potentially coming out to run against Trump in 2020, I don't know what is. And a Kennedy versus Trump, even someone as far removed from the that the royal family of the Kennedys, the Bobby, the Jack, the Ted, the Joe the First, all those guys... It could stand to reason that that could be something we're going to be getting in the not-too-distant future. And I guess with that, I'm moving out of the State of the Union section and into something else, which is this article from Politico, which is, Russia probe lawyers think Mueller could indict Trump. Many legal scholars doubt a U.S. versus Trump case is possible, but two attorneys who have dealt with the special counsel Robert Mueller's team disagree. One expects Mueller to move as early as this spring. Special Counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation has gathered enough steam that some lawyers representing key Donald Trump associates are considering the possibility of a historic first, an indictment against a sitting president. While many legal experts contend that Mueller lacks the standing to bring criminal charges against Trump, at least two attorneys working with clients swept up in the Russia probe told Politico they consider it possible that Mueller could indict the president for obstruction of justice. Neither attorney claimed to have specific knowledge of Mueller's plans. Both based their opinions on their understanding of the law. One also cited his interactions with the special counsel's team, whose interviews have recently examined whether Trump tried to derail the probe into his campaign's Russia ties. He said, and I quote, If I were a betting man, I'd bet against the president. The second attorney, who represents a senior Trump official, speculated that Mueller could try to bring an indictment against Trump even if he expects the move to draw fierce procedural challenges from the president's lawyers if only to demonstrate the gravity of his findings. It's entirely possible that Mueller may go that route on the theory that, as an open question, it should be for the courts to decide. Even if the indictment is dismissed, it puts maximum pressure on Congress to treat this with the independence and intellectual honesty that it will never, ever get." The lawyers' assessments hardly resolve the public debate about whether a federal prosecutor can indict a sitting president, one that several attorneys involved in the Russia probe said they were closely tracking through online op-eds and Twitter dust-ups. Several legal scholars say an effort by Mueller to initiate a case titled U.S. versus Trump would at a minimum likely move quickly to the Supreme Court, there is no legal precedent for an indictment of a president. Only a pair of Justice Department legal opinions from 1973 and 2000 saying it's not a viable option. The 2000 opinion concluded that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would unconstitutionally undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. The memo was written by an assistant attorney general nearly two years after the House impeached President Bill Clinton for lying under oath and instructing justice about his affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Independent counsel Kenneth Starr never tried to indict Clinton, but Starr, who filed a damning report to Congress in 1998, considered the option and even tasked his lawyers with preparing draft indictments, as well as legal opinion asserting his power to charge Clinton. It is proper, constitutional, and legal for a federal grand jury to indict a sitting president for for serious criminal acts that are not part of and are contrary to the president's official duties. Star's legal advisor Ronald Rotunda concluded in a 1998 memo first made public last summer through an open records request by the New York Times. In this country, no one, even President Clinton, is above the law, the memo said. Despite the assertion, Rotunda said in an interview that Mueller cannot indict Trump because he has a different legal standing than Starr enjoyed. Starr's powers were defined by an independent counsel statute that expired in 1999, Rotunda said that Mueller, by contrast, effectively has the powers of a U.S. attorney and must follow all DOJ rules, regulations, procedures, practices, and policies. That would mean Mueller is bound by the Clinton Justice Department's 2000 memo, he said, as well as another Justice Department opinion written in 1973. He said, if we know anything about Mueller, we think we know that he follows the rules. All of them. Paul Rosenweig, another former star deputy, wrote Tuesday in the Atlantic. Mueller will not indict Trump for obstruction of justice. Or for any crime, period, full stop, end of story, speculation is the contrary just fantasy. The 1973 Justice Department memo was used to shield President Richard Nixon from a possible indictment by Watergate prosecutors, who believed they had the power to bring one. The debate was unresolved after the special prosecutor decided to share his work with the House Judiciary Committee, which was preparing to launch impeachment proceedings against Nixon. The Justice Department regulations that govern Mueller's work offer no clear endgame for the public to follow his investigation. They do stipulate that the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rodenstein, has oversight of and final say on all major decisions by Mueller, specifically including any indictments. Rosenstein is also required to submit a report to Congress on the grounds for closing the investigation. Mueller's office and the Justice Department both declined comment, as did Attorneys for Trump and the White House. In a December interview with Axios, Trump's personal lawyer, John Dowd, argued that the president cannot obstruct justice because he's the chief law enforcement officer under the Constitution. Some Republicans warned that Mueller would be playing with fire should he pursue an indictment of Trump. It would create a constitutional crisis, said Rep. Ken Buck, a former federal prosecutor and district attorney. Buck said Mueller would be on especially dangerous grounds were he to base an obstruction of justice case on Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey. Assessing the motives of a president who decides to dismiss executive branch personnel would be unique in the history of the country. Signs that Mueller is closing in on Trump have been growing for months. Mueller has, indicated former, or sorry, has indicted former Trump campaign aides Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, both have pleaded not guilty, and obtained guilty pleas from former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and former Campaign Advisor George Papadopoulos for lying to the FBI. Witnesses and attorneys who have inter- been interviewed by the special counsel's team say the special counsel is focusing on a potential destruction of justice case based on several well-documented events, including Trump's firing of Comey and his efforts to prevent Attorney General Jeff Sessions' recusal from the Justice Department Russia probe. The lawyer had said he would bet against Trump, said he thinks Mueller could wrap up his case soon, potentially with an indictment to avoid acting too close to this fall's midterm elections. He says, if he's doing to do it, I think he'll do it in the spring. I don't think he'll want to be accused of trying to influence the election that dramatically. On Capitol Hill, several Democrats say they believe Mueller has the authority to file charges against Trump, but questions whether he actually would. I think that it's far more likely that if the special counsel finds evidence of criminality, that it's presented in a report to Congress. Representative Adam Schiff of California, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. Schiff said Mueller would likely have steep reservations about the notion that 12 jurors in some part of the country should decide the fate of the republic. In addition, Schiff said a federal judge may stay any criminal proceedings until after Trump's presidency. That was the assumption of the Nixier Justice Department memo, which suggested such an outcome could be disastrous. Given the realities of modern politics and mass media and the delicacy of the political relationship which surrounded the presidency both foreign and domestic, there would be a Russian roulette aspect to the court of indicting the president but postponing trial, hoping in the meantime that the power to govern could survive, wrote Robert G. Nixon Jr., then an assistant general and head of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Rosenstein could also deny any attempt by Mueller to indict Trump. Justice Department rules would require such denial to be transmitted to the House and Senate Judiciary Committee leaders at the conclusion of Mueller's work. That scenario would allow everybody involved, Mueller, Rosenstein to play the thing strictly by the book and still get Mueller's conclusion. If there's one that president if there is one that the president committed a crime into the hands of the only people to whom it really matters which is Congress. Philip Allen LaFaro, who served as a top counsel to the two Watergate special prosecutors, said he believes Mueller could seek an indictment against Trump but only if the facts suggest a slam-dunk case against the president. Lacovara dismissed the Clinton Justice Department memo's contention that an indictment would interfere with the president's official duties. When an in- incumbent president, whether it's Bush or Obama or Trump, spends an enormous amount of time on the golf course, it's a little bit fanciful to say the president can't be called to account for alleged criminality because he's got to be available 24 hours a day to be the president, which is a very true statement in my opinion. One of the Russia's defense attorneys also said. He called a jujitsu move, naming Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator in a larger obstruction of justice case that targets one or more associates. Whatever Mueller and his deputies have plans, the attorney said it is, not like, is likely to be anticlimactic. There's a sense of confidence I feel when I'm with him, said the same lawyer. Their level of confidence has grown, and that's a body language thing. So, that's a lot of information, it seems like... Things are getting close to some kind of payoff. It seems that maybe the Mueller investigation might wrap up in 2018. It's not exactly clear what that outcome will be, if it's going to lead to charges against Trump, an indictment, the indictment of someone close to the president or circle, like a family member, or someone close to his cabinet, like Sessions, or anyone in his cabinet. It could be very interesting to see where the next few months and in the rest of the year go. And obviously after something like that comes the next big story that came out on Friday, which was the Nunes Memo, which was released on Friday after the vote to make it public by the Republican Party and Trump choosing not to redact anything. And I'm going to read the Nunes Memo for you, including some annotated comments regarding the document. It was dated February 2nd, 2018. From the Honorable Devin Nunes. Mr. Nunes, the Republican of California, is the chief architect of the memo. Sorry, I'm speaking of the annotations from the New York Times article. So, Mr. Nunes, the Republican of California, is the chief architect of this memo, though it was drafted by a Republican staff member, Kashyap Patel. With backing from Speaker Paul D. Ryan, Mr. Nunes led Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee in a party-line vote, rejecting the simultaneous release of the Democrats' 10-page rebuttal memo, which they have portrayed as explaining inaccuracies and misleading omissions in this one. There's more news on that. ...towards the end of this part. (laughs) Uh, Dear Mr. Chairman, on January 29th, 2018, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, here and after the committee, voted to disclose publicly a memorandum containing classified information provided to the committee in connection with its oversight activities... The memorandum which is attached to this letter, as provided by Clause 11G of Rule X of the House of Representatives, the committee has forwarded this memorandum to the president based on its determination that the release of this memorandum would serve the public interest. God, I'm already getting sick of saying memorandum. The Constitution vests the president with the authority to protect national security secrets from disclosure. As the Supreme Court has recognized, it is the President's responsibility to classify, declassify, and control access to information bearing our intelligence, sources, and methods and national defense. In order to facilitate appropriate congressional oversight, the Executive Branch may entrust classified information to the appropriate committees of Congress as is done in connection with the committee's oversight activities here. The Executive Branch does so on the assumption that the committee will be responsible to protect such classified information consistent with the laws of the United States. The committee has now determined that the release of the memorandum would be appropriate. The executive branch across administration of both parties has worked to accommodate congressional requests to declassify specific material- materials to the public interest. However, public release of classified information by unilateral action of the legislative branch is extremely rare and raises significant separation of powers concerns comment on this is while house rules allow a rarely used procedure to make classified information public without executive branch approval the white house does not acknowledge that congress has legitimate authority to do so it remains unclear whether house republicans or the white house will eventually let the democratic rebuttal memo be released more on that soon (laughs) according to the committee's request to release the memorandum it is is interpreted as a request for declassification pursuant to the president's authority the President understands that the protection of our national security represents his highest obligation. Accordingly, he has directed lawyers and national security staff to assess the declassification request. Consistent with established standards governing the handling of classified information, including those under Section 3.1D of Executive Order 13526, those standards permit declassification when the, re- when the public interest in disclosure outweighs any need to protect the information. The White House review process also included input from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Justice. Comment on that is this letter from Donald F. McGann II. The White House counsel says the administration consulted with the Office of Dan Coates, the Director of National Intelligence, and the Justice Department. Notably, Mr. McGann does not say either institution concurred that it was a good idea to to make the memo public. In recent days, the FBI has publicly expressed... Grave concerns about material omission of fact that fundamentally impacts the memo's accuracy. While Mr. Coates' office has declined to comment. Back to the article, or back to the memo. Consistent with the review of these standards, the president has determined the declassification of the memorandum is appropriate. Based on this assessment, and in light of significant public interest in the memorandum, the president has authorized the declassification of the memorandum. To be clear, the memorandum reflects the judgments of its congressional authors. The president understands that oversight concerning matters related to memorandum baby continuing, though the circumstances leading to the declassification through this process are extraordinary. The executive branch stands ready to work with Congress to accommodate oversight requests consistent with applicable standards and processes, including the need to protect intelligent sources and methods. Sincerely, Donald F. McGann II, counsel to the president. Oh, that's Sorry, and that's just the letter portion. Now I really got to get into the actual memo portion, which is luckily is short, so it should be pretty quick to say in front of you guys, and I apologize for reciting this, but hey, if you didn't feel like actually reading it yourself, you can just listen to me say it to you, and listen to my little sidebars about the annotated parts of the memo. Uh, The memo declassified by Order of the President, February 2nd, 2018. The memo itself is dated January 18th to HPSCI majority members from HPSCI majority staff. Subject, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Abuses at the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The purpose? I am just going to say memo instead of memorandum from now on, just because it's a lot of word. This memo provides members an update on significant facts relating to the committee's ongoing investigation into the Department of Justice and Federal Bureau of Investigation and their use of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, during the 2016 presidential election cycle. Our findings which are detailed below one raise concerns with the legitimacy and legality of certain doj and fbi interactions with the foreign intelligence surveillance court fisc and two represent a troubling breakdown of legal processes established to protect the american people from an abuse related to the fisa process investigation update on october 21st 2016 doj and fbi sought and received a fisa probable cause order not under title seven Authorizing electronic surveillance on Carter Page from the FISC. Page is a U.S. citizen who served as volunteer advisor to the Trump presidential campaign, consistent with requirements under FISA or FISA. The application had to be first certified by the director or deputy director of the FBI. It then required the approval of the attorney general, deputy attorney general or the Senate-confirmed assistant attorney general for the National Security Division. The FBI and DOJ obtained one initial FISA warrant targeting Carter page and three FISA renewals from the FISC as required by Statute 50 U.S.C. 1805 D. 1. A FISA order on American citizens must be renewed by the FISC every 90 days and each renewal requires a separate finding of probable cause. Then Director James Comey signed three FISA applications in question on behalf of the FBI and the Deputy Director Andrew McCabe signed one. Then, District Attorney General Sally Yates. Then, Acting uh, District Attorney General Dana Bonnet and uh, DAG Rod Rosenstein. Mr. Bonnet and Mr. Rosenstein are both Trump administration officials. This is the comment. The General Counsel of the FBI and the Deputy Attorney General, respectively, under Justice Department regulations... It is Mr. Rosenstein who appointed and oversees Robert S. Mueller III, the special counsel leading the Russia investigation. Mr. Rosenstein controls the scope of Mr. Mueller's jurisdiction, can block him from taking steps like issuing indictments, and is the only official who can fire him. If Mr. Trump used the wiretapping of Mr. Page to justify removing Mr. Rosenstein, the president could insult someone who might be more willing to constrain or end the investigation. Back to the memo. Each signed one or more FISA applications on behalf of DOJ. Due to the sense of nature of foreign intelligence activity, FISA submission, including renewals, before the FIC are classified. As such, the public's confidence in the integrity of the FISA process depends on the court's ability to hold the government to the highest standard, particularly as it relates to surveillance of American citizens. However, the FISC rigor in protecting the rights of Americans, which is reinforced by 90-day renewals of surveillance orders, is necessarily dependent on the government's production to the court of all materials and relevant facts. This should include information potentially favorable to the target of the FISA application that is known by the government. In the case of Carter Page, the government had at least four independent opportunities before the FISC to accurately provide accounting of the relevant facts. However, our findings indicate that, as described below, material and relevant information was omitted." In accusing the FBI of omitting important information, this memo's critics say the memo itself omits crucial context, other evidence that did not come from Mr. Steele, much of which remains classified. For example, it makes no note of the fact that Mr. Page attracted the FBI's interest in 2013 when agents came to the re- believe came to believe that Russian spies were trying to recruit him. The FBI obtained a, a FISA wiretap order then as well, according to a person familiar with the matter. The top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee Representative Adam B. Schiff of California issued a statement saying that it is necessary to understand how the investigation began, when, what other information the FBI had about Russia's efforts to interfere with our election, and what the FBI knew about Carter Page prior to making application to the court. 1. The dossier compiled by Christopher Steele, Steele dossier, on behalf of the Democratic National Committee, or DNC, and the Hillary Clinton campaign formed an essential part of the Carter-Page visa application. Steele was a longtime FBI source who was paid over $160,000 by the DNC and Clinton campaign via the law firm Perkins Coy and research firm Fusion GPS to obtain derogatory information on Donald Trump's ties to Russia. A. Neither the initial application October 2016 nor any of the renewals Disclose or reference the role of the DNC Clinton campaign or any party slash campaign in funding Steele's efforts, even though the political origins of the Steele dossier were then known to a DOJ and FBI officials. The comment on that is David Chris, a FISA expert and the former head of the Justice Department's National Security Division during the first term of the Obama administration, called this the money quote in the memo. The impression created by that line, he said, is potentially problematic and worthy of further review. However, he said, the application did disclose that Mr. Steele's research was funded by the people who were tr- motivated to undermine Mr. Trump's campaign, even if they did not specify tr- even if they did not specifically name the Democratic National Committee or the campaign, then the FISA applications would be fine. This is one of the several serious mischaracterizations Mr. Schiff's statement said. The majority suggests that the FBI failed to alert the court as to Mr. Steele's potential political motivations or the political motivations of those who hired him, but this is not accurate. B. The initial FISA application... This is back to the memo. B. The initial FISA application note Steele was working for a named U.S. person but is not named Fusion GPS and Principal Glenn Simpson, who was paid by the U.S. law firm Perkins Coy, representing the DNC, even though it was known by DOJ at the time that the political actors were involved with the Steele dossier. The application does not mention Steele was ultimately worked working on behalf of and paid by the DNC and Clinton campaign, or that the FBI had separately authorized payments to Steele for the same information. The Carter Page piece application also cited extensively a S- September 23rd, 2016 Yahoo News article by Michael Isakoff, which focuses on Page's July 2016 trip to Moscow, This article does not corroborate the Steele dossier, but it is derived from an information leaked by Steele himself to Yahoo News. Regarding this, Mr. Schiff deemed this to be another of those serious mischaracterations saying that the article was not used to corroborate Mr. Steele. Mr. Chris, the FISA expert, said that it was much more likely that this would include an article to show that the investigation had become public, and that the target therefore might take steps to destroy evidence to cover his tracks." The page visa accurately incorrectly assesses that Steele did not directly provide information to Yahoo News. Steele had admitted in British court filings regarding the British court filings. The court filing referenced here took place on May 18th, 2017, long after the initial application and at least the first renewal application. Steele admitted in British court filings that he met with Yahoo News and several other outlets in September 2016. At the direction of Fusion GPS, Perkins Coy was aware of Steele's initial media contacts because they hosted at least one meeting in Washington, D.C. in 2016 with Steele and Fusion GPS, where this matter was discussed. Steele was suspended and then terminated. The language here is used on Mr. Steele's relationship with the FBI, suggests that it was formal, but he never entered in any formal relationship from which he could be suspended or terminated according to people familiar with their interactions. As an F- back to the article, Steele was submitted and then terminated as an FBI source for what the FBI describes as the most serious of violations an unauthorized a- disclosure to the media of his relationship with the FBI on October 30th, 2016. Mother Jones article by David Korn. Steele should have been terminated for his previous undisclosed contacts with Yahoo and other outlets in September before the page application was submitted to the FISC in October. But Steele properly concealed from and lied to the FBI about those contacts. Comment on that, Mr. Steele de- took detailed notes of his conversation with the FBI on October 1st, 2016. A person familiar with the note says that they contain no evidence that the discussion addressed whether he was also talking to the news media. B, Steele's n- numerous encounters with the media violated the cardinal rule of source handling, maintaining confidentiality, and demonstrated that Steele had become a less than reliable source for the FBI. Three, before and after Steele was terminated as a source, he maintained contact with the DOJ via then-Associate Deputy Attorney General Bruce Orr, a senior DOJ official who worked closely with Deputy Attorney General Yates and later Rosenstein. Shortly after the election, the FBI began interviewing Orr, documenting his communication with Steele. For example, in September 2016, Steele admitted to Orr his feelings against then-candidate Trump when Steele said he, and this is where they put in quotes in the memo, was desperate that Donald Trump not get elected and was passionate about him not being president. It was emboldened in the memo because it's like, wow, he doesn't want Trump to get elected. Woo! Big whoop. (laughs) This clear evidence of Steele's bias was recorded by Orr at the time and subsequently in official FBI files, but not reflected in any of the page FISA applications. A. During the same time period, Orr's wife was employed by Fusion GPS to assist in the cultivation of opposition research for Trump. Orr later provided the FBI with all of his wife's opposition research paid for by the DNC and Clinton campaign via Fusion GPS. The Orr's relationship with Steele and Fusion GPS was inexplicably concealed from the FISC. Comment on that was Mr. Orr worked on counter-narcotics investigations, there's no public evidence he played a role in the FISA application. Four, according to the head of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division, Assistant Director Bill Prizetap, or Priestip, corroboration of the Steele dossier was in its infancy at the time of the initial Page Feast application. After Steele was terminated, a source validation report conducted by the independent unit within FBI says Steele's reporting is... Only minimally corroborated. Yet in early January 2017, Director Comey briefed President elect Trump on a summary of the Steele dossier, even though it was, according to his June 2017 testimony, salacious and unverified. While the FISA application relied on Steele's past record of credible reporting on other unrelated matters, it ignored or concealed his anti Trump financial and ideological motivations. Furthermore, Deputy Director McCabe testified before the committee in December 2017 that no surveillance warrant would have been sought from the FISC without the Steele dossier information. The Page FISA, sorry, number five, the Page FISA application also mentions information regarding fellow Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos, but there is no evidence of any cooperation or conspiracy between Page and Papadopoulos. Comment on that statement is, Mr. Schiff's statement portrays this line as mischaracterization in the context in which the application discussed Mr. Papadopoulos. The DOJ appropriately provided the court with a comprehensive explanation of Russia's election interference, including evidence that Russian agents courted another Trump campaign for an advisor, George Papadopoulos. As we know from Papadopoulos' guilty plea, Russian agents disclosed to Papadopoulos that their their possession of stolen Clinton emails and interest in relationship with the campaign claiming there is no evidence of any cooperation or conspiracy between Page and Papadopoulos, the majority deliberately mistakes the reason why DOJ specifically explained Russia's role in courting Papadopoulos in the context in which to evaluate Russian approaches to Page. Whew, that is another big quote. The Papadopoulos information, this is back to the memo, the Papadopoulos information triggered the opening of an FBI counterintelligence investigation in late July 2016 by FBI agent Peter... S-T-R-Z-O-K. Strock? I'm going to say Strock. Strock was reassigned by the Special Counsel's Office to FBI Human Resources for improper text messages with his mistress. FBI Attorney Lisa Page. No known relation to Carter Page, in parentheses. Where they both demonstrated a clear bias against Trump and in favor of Clinton, whom Strock had also investigated. The Strzok Lisa Page text also reflect extensive discussions about the investigation orchestrating leaks to the media include a meeting with Deputy Director McCabe to discuss an insurance policy against President Trump's election. The memo here states, as fact, a theory pushed by conservative commentators that this text messaged evidence of a conspiracy to prevent Trump from being elected. According to a person familiar with the conversation, the text message referenced a debate inside the FBI over how aggressively and publicly they should move on the Russia case. Some argue that it was unlikely to be solved by election day, and the chance of a Trump victory was low. Mr. Strzok argued that FBI had an obligation to move quickly, making an analogy that even though the chance of dying young is low, buying insurance is still prudent. Mr. Strzok lost the argument, and the FBI kept the investigation a secret. And the last line is, unclassified property of the U.S. House of Representatives. So that is the Nunes memo. In all its glory. After all... We heard, leading up to its release, from members of the Republican Party, from Trump himself. After all that, the Nunes memo was basically a dud. It's the equivalent of the ex-wife missile in Iron Man 2. All hype and no substance. And speaking of Iron Man 2, the Journey into Comics Network is doing the Road to Infinity War which you can access now at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics for only $3 a month. So go do that. And really, getting back to it, the Nunes memo was touted as this and-all be-all. Trump even came out to say after it was released that this basically, throughout the whole investigation, that basically said that there's no issues, that this basically puts me in the clear. It vindicated him from all of this chaos that's been going on. And really, that's not the case at all. There's still, there has to be said, and there's goes the news that dropped just before I recorded this, which is, as of the time I'm recording this, which is Monday, the committee votes to release Democratic rebuttal to GOP Russia memo. That's right. Like I was saying, get a wait around for it. The House Intelligence Committee voted on Monday to make public a declassified Democratic memorandum rebuttal Budding Republican claims that the FBI and the Justice Department had abused their powers to wiretap a former Trump campaign official setting up a possible clash with President Trump. The vote gives Mr. Trump five days to review the Democratic memo and determine whether he will try to block its release. A decision to stop it would lead to an ugly standoff between the president, his top law enforcement, and intelligence advisors and Democrats on Capitol Hill. Mr. Trump vocally supported the release of the Republican's memo last week. Declassifying its contents on Friday over the ejections of Democrats and his own FBI, which issued a rare public statement to warn that it had grave concerns about the memo's accuracy. On Saturday, he claimed incorrectly that the memo totally vindicates him in the in continuing investigation to Russia's interference in the 2016 election. The 10-page Democratic document is certain to be less flattering to his case. Democrats have said the memo corrects mischaracterations by the Republicans and adds crucial context to actions by the FBI and the Justice Department in obtaining a secret foreign intelligence surveillance court order to wiretap the former Trump aide, Carter Page, in October October 2016. If Mr. Trump tries to block the Democratic memo's release, House rules allow Democrats to seek a closed-door vote of the full House of Representatives to override the president, with some Republicans now arguing for its release... The House could override the President's decision, a rare rebuke to his authority. So it's really interesting to see how this shakes out. Like I said, the Democratic memo, which will be a 10-major memo in response to the Republican memo that was released on Friday, may be seen as early as the end of the week, five days from now. I don't know if that means work days or full days, so maybe by the time episode 24 rolls out, I'll have a... I can go over the Democratic memo, which I probably won't read because it is 10 pages and that's a lot of time talking. And then this episode's already going to run over an hour. So I think I should move on away from presidential talk and politics and all that that's going on. And I'll probably put a aside at the beginning of this episode that if you don't really care about the State of the Union or the New memo, you can jump to this moment. So with that, I'm going to move on to my next topic. Which involves Uma Thurman and Harvey Weinstein. For those of you who don't know, uh, this was a few months ago. They asked Uma Thurman about Harvey Weinstein, being that she was heavily involved in a lot of early Quentin Tarantino movies that were produced by Weinstein and his production company. And she said, I'm too angry to speak right now when I'm no longer angry is when I'll talk. And apparently that was Saturday? Friday or Saturday? And I'm going to read this report from Deadline. In a shocking story in the New York Times today, Uma Thurman details sexual assaults at the hands of Harvey Weinstein. In the article post online today and running in tomorrow's print edition, Thurman describes being assaulted by an unnamed actor 20 years older than her when she was 16. And she not only details Weinstein's predata- pred- basically predatory behavior towards her, but her lingering memory of staying silent for so long. Thurman laments or inability to come forward about these traumatic situations put other younger women in danger. The complicated feelings I have about Harvey is how bad I feel about all the women that were attacked after I was. I am one of reasons that a young girl would walk into his room alone. The way I did, she tells Doubt Quentin used Harvey as an executive producer on, of Kill Bill, a movie that symbolizes female empowerment, and all these lambs walked into slaughter because they were convinced... Nobody rises such a position who would do something illegal to you, but they do. Weinstein has long denied allegations of non-consensual sex, and he, has, he through spokesman, explained himself in the article, which will be a must-read piece this weekend in Hollywood. A snippet of the article is the first attack, she says, came not long after in Weinstein's suite at the Savoy Hotel in London. It was such a bat to the head, he pushed me down, he tried to shove himself on me, He tried to expose himself, he did all kinds of unpleasant things, but didn't actually put his back into it and force me. You're not... you're like an animal wriggling away, like a lizard. I was doing anything I could to get to the train back on the track. My track, not his track. She was staying in Fulham with her friend uh, Lana Herman, Robert De Niro's longtime makeup artist, who later worked with Thurman on Kill Bill. The next day to her house arrived a 26-inch wide, vulgar bunch of roses. Thurman says they were yellow and it opened the note like it was a soiled diaper and it just said, You have great instincts. Then she says, Weinstein's assistant started calling again to talk about projects. She thought that she could confront him and clear it up, but she took Herman with her and asked Weinstein to meet her in the Savoy bar. The assistants had their own special choreography to lure actors into a spider's web, and they pressured Thurman, putting Weinstein on a phone to say again, to say it was a misunderstanding and we have so many projects together. Finally, she agreed to go upstairs while Herman waited on a SETI outside the elevators. Once the assistance vanished, Thurman says she warned Weinstein, If you do what you did to me, to other people, you will lose your career, your reputation, and your family, I promise you. Her memory of the incident abruptly stops there, though Representative Weinstein, who was in therapy in Arizona, agreed that she very well could have said this. Uh, downstairs, Herman was getting nervous. It seemed to take forever. The friend told me. Finally, the elevator's doors opened and Thurman walked out. She was very disheveled and so upset and had this blank look. Herman recalled. Her eyes were crazy and she was totally out of control. I shoveled her into a taxi we went back home to my house. She was really shaking. Herman said that when the actor was able to talk again, she revealed that Weinstein had threatened to derail her career. Weinstein denied the claim in a statement released along with photos of himself and Thurman, he says, indicate a strong relationship. This is just awful. Awful behavior. We know that Harvey Weinstein is just the epitome of scum. Like that he's been doing this stuff for 20 years or more blindly that we've seen. And no actress of any caliber was immune to what he was doing. He tried it with everyone. And it's just sickening. And i sorry to my listener that I had to read that for you. It's definitely grotesque and awful. But yeah. Harvey Weinstein deserves to be in jail. If Larry Nassar, that evil man who literally assaulted young girls for over 20 years, is serving up to 125 years in prison for his actions, then Harvey Weinstein deserves to be in his roommate for the rest of that time. And really, I need to get away from the heavy topics, which I've been doing since I started this episode, and we're now sitting at over an hour in, which moves on to, I guess, the last topic I want to talk about today, which is the Super Bowl. It was an amazing game. I'm sitting here recording this in my Chicago Bears jersey, number 54 for Brian Erlacher, because Erlacher over the weekend got voted into the Hall of Fame, so he'll be inducted later this year. So I'm very happy for that, and it's some good news out of Bears country in a football season that seems to always be fraught with not much success. And speaking of the Super Bowl, we saw the Eagles take on the Patriots in a game that was most likely to be seen as the Kings of the Castle versus the Underdogs, and we saw early in the end the Underdogs come out on top. I'm not a big sports guy, so I really can't talk into the details of how the game went, but the last few minutes of that game were so enthralling. I remember just sitting there just watching it on my couch and watching the back and forth and the fact that once the once Philadelphia caught up and got to that score, which was 41-33, to 33, once we saw them take that lead, we realized they're not going to let... The Patriots every move that they tried to make to try and get another touchdown, the Eagles would just block it, pulling uh, Tom Brady down, really just blocking every chance they had. They were really in it to win it, and it really showed at the end of that. And We saw a first Super Bowl victory for Philadelphia, and it led to a lot of great speeches uh, by the owner, by the coach, by Zach Ertz and uh, Nick Foles. We saw all the celebrations and riots in Philly and the the destruction of some of the stuff and people climbing poles that were covered in hydraulic fluid. It was a crazy night and a great game. I mean, last year we saw, a, if not, I believe the first overtime Super Bowl, and this year just saw another epic thing. And just watching all of the players put their hands on or kiss the Lombardi trophy, it was just... Quite a sight to behold, and it was it made for a great game, and I was lucky to be able to watch most of it live. so but I know some people watch the bull for other reasons they watch maybe to see Justin Timberlake perform the halftime show or just for the commercials, which brings me to the next part. All the commercials we saw in the Super Bowl this year. I have a list of ones I think are the most notable, and these I kind of pulled for myself. They weren't really from an article or anything, but First one I have here is the Doritos Blaze versus Mountain Dew Ice commercial. I don't think I've ever seen Doritos and Mountain Dew do a commercial together, but I thought it was kind of cool. We had Peter Dinklage, who looked just who was basically dressed as Tyrion Lannister, Tyrion Lannister, sorry, walk down this flaming, uh, was like castle room, to uh, Busta Rhymes' verse of the Chris Brown's Look At Me Now song, doing that like, just rapid. I didn't even know Peter Dinklage could rap like that. I kind of wanted to see him if he actually set how he actually sounds doing that and not just being dubbed by Buster Rhymes. And then, when that was done, we had the other side of the room, which was starting to freeze with Morgan Freeman, who cut to Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak on, and he was singing that. And then they both ended up at the end facing each other, fire and ice. It was a very cool commercial, and to get actors of Morgan Freeman and Peter Dinklage's caliber to do it was definitely icing on the cake there we also saw kind of another weird commercial which was the nfl doing a dirty dancing type commercial which involved eli manning and odell beckham jr during the dirty dancing move where odell beckham jr ran at eli manning and eli manning lifted him over his head doing that move to the song uh i've had the time of my life i don't know the words i'm sorry. Also I think the funniest commercial there's actually a lot of tide commercials in the Super Bowl, which is kind of funny given when I talked about last week regarding the whole tide pods and don't eat it. And I thought they were actually gonna do a commercial about that. They didn't, but I think the best tide commercial was David Harbour doing a bunch of typical Super Bowl commercials, but they weren't actually about what they appeared to be and ended up being just tide. It was pretty entertaining. We also saw probably the most interesting marketing campaign in a commercial, which was for Cloverfield Paradox, the third movie in the Cloverfield series. I don't know if it's it consider a sequel or maybe part of an anthology since they're not direct continuations, but they're all tied into that world. But basically, Netflix paid, what, $5 million for the ad space to drop the first trailer for the Cloverfield Paradox And basically announced that it's going to drop on Netflix the minute the Super Bowl is over. I mean, that cuts out months of trailer discussion, months of interviews with cast, all the publicity. And just said, like, hey, we made a movie. Here it is. Like, what? I know the movie, after being out for not even 24 hours, has been met with some mixed reviews. But I encourage everyone to watch it. I haven't watched it yet, but I plan to watch all three movies. Since I own the first two, and then I'll just watch the third one on Netflix and see how they all connect. And maybe I'll discuss it on Foodies Watching Movies, which another show I do, which drops every other Wednesday. So not tomorrow, but the following Wednesday there will be another episode for you. Also saw a Westworld Season 2 trailer, which I'm so pumped. Uh, the quote they used like in the voiceover for the trailer was, We built this world together, a world where dreams come true, a world where you can be free. But this world is a lie. The world deserves to die because this is your world. We've lived your rules long enough. We can save this world. We can burn it to the ground. And from the ashes build a new world. Our world. So basically the way the ending was, what I talked about probably 15 or 20 episodes ago. Well, not 20, but in the high teen episodes ago, I talked about World at the end of my show. And a little bit on the cross I did with Podcastrophy. So I'm definitely pumped for this. I'm kind of disappointed because I don't have HBO anymore. But I may have to get HBO for a month to binge watch Westworld Season 2. also got to see a Jeep commercial involving Jeff Goldblum. Which took in a chunk of the Jurassic Park trailer. Where they're in the back of the Jeep and Jeff Brady's a little injured. And they're kind of driving along. And then it kind of cuts to present day... Jeff Goldblum driving a 2018 Jeep, also being chased by the dinosaur, and then he puts the brakes on and ends up chasing the, di- the T-Rex, and then it turns out it was all a dream, and he was actually in a Jeep showroom, and yeah, typical Jeff Goldblum being Jeff Goldblum, and we'll see him later in the uh, Jurassic World sequel Fallen Kingdom, I believe, which also was a trailer for a day, but it wasn't anything special that we've seen be- that we haven't seen before. And probably the most anticipated trailer that people were expecting to see was for Solo, A Star Wars Story. Now, they dropped a quick teaser during the Super Bowl. And then basically, we already knew that we were going to get a full trailer uh, yesterday morning, which was Monday. So, um, kind of interesting thing. Uh, first teaser looked great. I mean, this is the first bit of thing information we've seen regarding Solo... Since all the crazy cast news with the director shift between Ron Howard and uh, Lord and Miller. So I think the... I just, you can guys go look on YouTube and watch the trailer yourself. Um, the best scene for me, which if you don't want spoilers you can always skip over the next minute. The best scene for me was when the Millennium Falcons being chased by TIE fighters... And a Star Destroyer in a storm, so it's, like, gray and blowing, and there's lightning, and there's just a Star Destroyer, like, nose first coming in with TIE Fighters being chased in the Millennium Falcon, which looks all clean and pretty, and you have Han and Chewie in the pilot and co-pilot chairs. Yeah, Kira, uh, I think it's Kira, Q-apostrophe-I-R-A, I think is how her name is spelled, played by, uh, Daenerys, uh, Amelia You also have Lando in the back, looking very much like Lando, so good job, Donald Glover, and you get, it's great visuals and mood setting and really looks like a nice conclusion. The only negative for me, which I'll guess up to see how it plays out in the context of the film, is that it, later in that scene you also see them kind of racing through with the arms of this giant tentacle monster, which felt a little like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 for me, when there was that big alien they were fighting with the tentacles and all that. But really when you're comparing space operas, it's an easy comparison to make. And those are really the Super Bowl commercials I wanted to talk about. That was my list. Super Bowl was pretty exciting to watch. The commercials were good, as always. The halftime show was not super memorable to me, and I kind of paid attention. But Justin Timberlake's not really my go-to artist, so I really wasn't following it too closely. I know there was a Prince tribute that maybe rubbed people the wrong way, but... That was kind of that. And I kind of want to jump over to a segment that kind of rubs me the wrong way and it after talking last week after my show um with some other people from the network uh nate the podfather himself actually talked about an idea of like a rant segment for me which i hadn't really thought about but he said like after you ranted about the tide pods and some stuff on previous episodes maybe it's good to have it as an actual segment so in addition to The Poor Four, which I've unveiled a few episodes ago and talked about before, even though I didn't really talk about a name, but I covered the State of the Union, the Nunez Memo, the Uma Thurman, uh, Harvey Weinstein, and then the Super Bowl, uh, that I should have a segment. I thought of a great name for it, which is The Poor Retort. So we have The Poor Rapport, The Poor Retort, all kind of sounds the same, and mine on today is on... Emotional support animals. Now I'm sure a lot of you have seen the article probably on social media or on on the news about an emotional support peacock that caused a bunch of issues in airports. And it led to United Airlines and Delta and a couple other uh, airlines from updating their policies regarding emotional support animals. So we've seen a big jump in emotional support animals. It's almost doubled between 2016 and 2017. And these aren't like service animals. These aren't dogs with vests that are there for a specific purpose. Like for someone who is blind or needs assistance walking. It's... These are people who don't have trained. They paid a certain amount of money to get tags and paperwork to say, I need this dog for my health or for my stress or something like that. And that's why they have a pet. And it's a common thing. It's been going on for a while. It's basically... A lot of people did it a while back so they could have a pet that they needed for their emotional health, like in an apartment or a house, or like rent a place that doesn't allow pets. It doesn't mean you can take that dog into stores, it doesn't mean you can take the dog into airplanes. But there's been fine' of people pushing that limit. And I've seen it firsthand. I traveled a lot in twenty seventeen and early twenty eighteen and I was in a lot of different airports and I've saw my fair share of animals that weren't well trained. I literally saw dog shit. On a terminal at O'Hare Airport. Like, just in the middle there, and then there's a guy walking away with his dog. I'm like, what? Seriously? Like, could you not crate your dog? I know it's inconvenient. You don't feel bad for the dog to put it under the plane for the duration of your flight. But if it's that big a deal, don't take your dog. If you're traveling to move, then drive. If you're going overseas, make other arrangements. I shouldn't be inconvenienced because you feel you need to have your dog with you for a two-hour flight from Ohio to Chicago or however long a two-hour flight is. Like, I don't know why I have to deal with a dog or a peacock or a monkey or these other stupid animals. Like, someone literally tried to have an emotional support peacock and put it on a plane. Like, what in the world are people thinking? You can't just be this stubborn. You can't just be like... I need this, I can't handle anything for two hours, like, yeah, I have two cats and a dog. I've grown up with pets, I love them, I would love to be able to take them on a plane, but I don't because that's insanity. You don't need a pet with you on a plane if you're traveling, even if you're going on vacation, you don't need to take your dog with you. If you really do, pay the money, put him under the plane, sedate them if you have to, and that's what normal people have done for years. I don't know why you have to take your dog or cat or fish or bird or whatever the fuck your animal is on a plane with you. It's not that big a deal. If you really want to take them on vacation, drive to your vacation. I don't care if it's a 30-hour drive from here to Florida. Drive. Or check it as luggage with all this stuff they'll put under the plane. Plenty of people have done it before. I don't know why this is news. Why your pet needs to be there. I've gone to restaurants where someone's dog claims to be a service dog, has the vest, then as soon as you leave the restaurant is barking at other dogs and chasing and wanting to pull and, like, the owner has no control. Service animal training is a legit thing. Dogs are very expensive. Thousands and thousands of dollars of training are put into these animals. There's dogs that are there to detect A seizure before it happens. For low blood sugar. There's dogs that are trained in so many things. But the person has to be trained just along with it. And just saying your dog is a service or support animal is meaningless. You have to have paperwork. You have to contact the airport. If you have a legit service dog who's well trained, I'm not going to notice it on a plane. If I hear a a, a dog barking or I hear something else or I hear an animal of any kind on a plane that it's not supposed to be there just because you wanted your little buddy with you on the plane... That I shouldn't hear it. Like, it's very frustrating. Like, literally, I was walking onto a plane a couple months ago. There's literally a bulldog just chilling on the ground. Quietest dog ever. Saw it. Didn't acknowledge me. I didn't really acknowledge him. Kept walking. Found my seat. Didn't hear the dog on the plane. There was no mess. Like, if you have a dog that's untrained and takes a shit on a plane or pees on a plane, I'm going to smell that for the duration of my flight. Because you can't clean that up on a plane while it's in air. Like... People need to just think about what they're doing. I don't know. It's just bothersome that this is a thing that we're discussing now. There's so many more important things to talk about than you wanting to bring your dog or cat or something on a plane with you. It may be the best dog in the world at home, but if it doesn't know how to behave around people or other uncommon things or pressure on a plane, I don't know. It's like, well, I can't be without my dog. I want to bring it to the movie theater. Like, no, that's insanity. Like, just, I don't know. That's all I want to say today on the poor retort segment on emotional support animals. Like, I wouldn't do it. If I tried to move into a place that didn't allow pets, I would just move to a different place. It's the same reason I am get so upset when people surrender an animal to a shelter because they move to a place that doesn't allow the animal. You know there's other places to live in that city that you're moving to. I don't care if the price isn't right. You chose a dog or a cat that's a lifelong commitment. Like, you don't get a dog because it's cute as a pup. You get a dog because you want an animal in your life and you want to deal with that animal. Like, there's a cat literally a foot behind me while I'm talking, just sleeping and making noises, which you might be able to pick on the mic. And they're they're adorable, but you know they're not a commitment why they're just cute, why they're a kitten. You're having a pet for 15, 16 years. There's cats that live to 20 years. There's dogs that live up to 18 years. They're a lifelong commitment. You have a a pet. It's just something. It's a it's a lifelong commitment. You're not just getting it for the convenience of it. And you shouldn't inconvenience others by having it. And you shouldn't disrespect the animal by putting it in a shelter. That's my thoughts on this. I'm really passionate about animals. I volunteered a shelter, but really just be respectful of where you're going. If you really have need for animal. You can do the diligence, get it registered, get the paperwork, tell the airline before you're going to be there. Don't just show up with an animal and be like, I need this for my health. Like, no, there's rules for a reason. We can't just ignore the rules and hope and pretend there's no consequences. And that's the best way to end the Poor Report for this week. Um, I'm Andrew Poor. This is the Poor Report. In my statement last week, I talked about a way to end the show. So just remember, everyone... When you're reading the news, it's the duty of the press to serve the governed, not the governors. Have a great week, guys.